This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, welcome. This is a one-book event uh, from the library, actually, but because the library is under construction, we are out of our normal home, and we're over here in the F building, so I want to thank um, Tori and Sean and the Fine and Performing Arts Center staff are helping us make this possible. This is a nice space, and they've made it very easy. Um, our book this year that we're studying and talking about is James Baldwin's uh, Giovanni's Room. So if you haven't read that, I encourage you, you can get a copy in the library. You can get a copy uh, at the bookstore. It's a classic. James Baldwin is a giant um, of American writers of the 20th century, and we wanted to talk about him for a number of reasons. Baldwin has this interesting identity uh, at the end of the 20th century, moving up from the 50s into the 60s and then up to his death into the 80s. Um, He was an African-American man who was a voice in the civil rights movement, but he was also gay. And so he had these, these identities that really connect with people in communities who are seeking social justice, seeking to be heard. And I feel like we're living through these moments at the end of the 20th century, early 21st century, where we're living through these um, unique changes in terms of how we understand these identities. And he was really at the heart of, of a lot of changes going on. Our event today was supposed to feature um, a faculty member from University of Illinois at Chicago, John D'Amelio. And unfortunately, due to a family illness, he was not able to join us today. And we're sad about that. We're going to try to do something later with him um, down the road. When he informed us of this, we started begging our own local expert, Tamara Coleman-Hill, said, Tammy, we have to do something on civil rights and James Baldwin in this voice. And we wouldn't be doing our jobs if we let this moment go by. So she graciously said yes, and did her homework over the weekend to prepare. So this is what we're going to do today, is we're going to show 20 minutes of a documentary about James Baldwin, Um, and then we're going to have a conversation led by um, Tammy, and we'll see where we go. So this documentary is called um, Price of a Ticket. You can stream it for free off of the library website. If you go to our catalog and look up Price of a Ticket, you can find it. You can watch it online anytime. Um, it's, a, it's a long documentary, so we didn't want to watch the whole thing. So we're going to watch 20 minutes of the documentary focusing on civil rights in James Baldwin. And I want to set this up because we're kind of coming into the middle, right? So they've spent a whole bunch of time in this documentary learning about who he was. He's gaining his voice as a writer. So by this point, he is one of the most well-respected writers, perhaps the most well-respected African-American writer um, in the country at a moment where we've gone through Brown versus Board of Education, segregation is falling down, there's been protests, there's been bus uh, rides, we are making progress in civil rights, and things start to get rough, and the progress isn't coming fast enough, and there's this real identity crisis in the civil rights movement, who are we going to be? Are we going to be a peaceful voice that pushes for change, and we're going to be patient and wait for changes to happen? Or are we going to become a militant voice that really seeks out violence to make violent change? And James Baldwin is at the center in some unique ways of all of these conversations. And the reason this matters for us today is that these conversations still are not done, right? We're not through with these conversations, as we learned this past summer in Ferguson, Missouri, which was one of the most striking examples of hot debate about who has the rights in our society, who doesn't, what's the right way to express it, and what is not, and how does that go down. And so to think that this is something that happened 
40 or 50 years ago, and something that is done is, is the wrong message to take from today. And so we are looking back at a leader who had a strong voice to see what we can learn and bring that up to us today, if that makes sense. Am I forgetting anything? Okay, so I'm going to start with the documentary, and then hopefully it'll work. Yes. You have your own microphone. Don't take mine. I want to add, as we're watching the video, and then I'll further in our conversation after the video, is um, James Baldwin's voice in relation to his ability to make change through his words. And given, and I, I think I'm correct, that the classes that are here are um, speech and composition classes. That's a lot of what you're talking about. And thinking about rhetoric and thinking about the power of language, one of the things that, um, okay, is that better? Okay. One of the things that Baldwin is really most noted for is that the beauty in his language and the power in his language and the rhetoric itself. So I think that's an important piece for us, us to think about. Okay. Um, right there. Um, I, I want this to kind of be a little bit more conversational. I'm going to say some things and ask some questions, and they're not rhetorical questions. I'm expecting you to actually respond. Um, based on what you've seen of Baldwin, and, and I'm glad that we got to actually hear him speak, see his face, see the way that he's talking to the um, interviewers or the people he's talking to, what word would you use to describe him? Anybody, and feel free to call out. Did you say confident? Yeah. Okay. Confident? Other words? Angry. Angry. Articulate. Articulate. Okay. Emotional. Emotional. Is that what I heard? Yeah. Passionate. Passionate. Okay. Other words? Inspired. Inspired. Okay. No. Other thoughts? Passion, emotion, angry, right? All sort of emotional um, things that come from inside, feelings. Um, we ended on the death of X, Malcolm X, the death of King, um, Edgar Evers, um, obviously um, people who are um, significant in history, particularly to the um, black civil rights movement. Um, I think that Baldwin's space in this movement is really important. Um, and we saw a little bit here, but just to give a bit more background and try to understand him a little bit better, um, he wasn't necessarily, um, we, we, we talk about him as an activist, but he wasn't an activist in the sense that we think about maybe like a Martin Luther King or a Malcolm X in that way. I think Baldwin is an activist by necessity. And, and the reason I say necessity, um, he was very different from King. King came from a middle-class family. King came from a well-educated family. King, in many ways, came from privilege, where Baldwin came from a very poor family, lived in Harlem, didn't have very much, um, lots of reasons to be angry beyond the obvious sort of social and political conditions happening, but just in general, his own life. So his voice, the way in which he speaks, whether it's in his fiction or in his essays in particular, is very angry and is coming from a place of he really is the lowest man on the totem pole, which in, in some ways one could argue that King also occupied that space, but there certainly is privilege there. And so when we think about um, James Baldwin, we're thinking about a man who 
clearly is articulate, clearly is passionate, clearly is a, a black man living during these times, but he is also, um, he comes from a, a particular place. He is also gay, which was one of the reasons why he was not able to be a part of the Black Panther Party and some of the more nationalist movements, because that particular, those, that particular faction of the civil rights movement really did not accept him. And they, you know, in many ways discriminated against him for that reason. And so could that be another reason why he's so angry? Yeah, could be, right? So he's sort of speaking out against all of these, um, the conditions really of his life. What I want to connect that to, given that these are all writing classes and my particular interest in um, activism and speaking out and writing in particular for change and for political change, is that oftentimes when we think about um, writing, we think about um, essays, we sometimes disconnect ourselves from it. Particularly in the academic world, when we think about writing, we're always looking for this objective voice or we're, we're looking for the voices of other people to, to sort of give us credibility. Oftentimes I hear students ask me, can I use I? And in some cases, we as English teachers say, no, you know, remove yourself from the I. But the thing that made Baldwin so powerful is his ability to use the I and to bring the personal into what is largely very political, right? Um, so when he's talking about disparities of black people in Harlem, he's talking about a lived experience in Harlem. And often in his writing, he does use his personal experiences to help reflect the larger problem, which brings people into the story, right? Um, I, I like to teach in my Com 101 classes the personal essay. Um, although our personal experiences and narrative is often not valued in the academic world, I think it's important for students to first connect with themselves and their experiences and then sort of move out to this more objective space. And I often find that that also brings the audience in. That helps the audience to, be a, to become a part of the experience. It um, has a sense of um, um, allowing people to empathize with the experience, right? Connecting to that pathos piece. So what I'd like to do is read a little bit from Baldwin and I, I'm gonna show another short video of um, a, a young African-American man reciting some of the words of James Baldwin, and I want to talk about the rhetorical effect and the power that his words and his voice sort of had on audiences during the Civil Rights Movement and also why he's such an important figure today. Some things to think about. Um, James Baldwin's style is very specific. There are even instructors who have assignments where they're asking their students to develop essays in the style of James Baldwin. So what does that look like? So there's a, there are a list of things that I have here. In terms of his syntax, that means word order. When he speaks, when he writes, his sentence lengths vary. So they might go from these very short, choppy, emphatic, um, very powerful sentences to these longer, more complex, more melodic sort of sentences, and then back to the short and choppy. That has a very specific effect on us as readers. And I'll um, look at some of his writing, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, punctuation, obviously something that you don't necessarily hear, um, but when you see his writing, you'll note that he has very interesting um, comma usage, um, also using a lot of dashes as opposed to um, commas or periods and, and sort of these um, very interesting um, points in which he's commenting on his analysis, um, which is also very powerful. Um, shifting pronouns, parentheses, he uses a lot of repetition. Repetition is powerful because you repeat things because you want somebody to hear a particular thing or a particular idea. Um, imagery. He has a lot of imagery. He shows us a lot of what he's experiencing in his writing. We get to be pulled in to that and feel that. Symbols. 
he uses a lot of symbols, in particular when he's talking about American politics. He talks about the flag, he talks about notions of justice, he talks about liberty, right? And he sort of um, situates these discussions alongside what America's ideals are and what black people in America actually experience or oppressed people, what they experience. So he, he uses um, symbols to do that. Juxtaposition, sort of sitting these two things that are not necessarily in agreement alongside of each other. Um, so we're going to look at a couple of things. What I'd like you to do is listen to the words. I'm going to read from some of his writings, some different essays, and think about some of the things that you uh, mentioned when I asked um, uh, which word you think describes him. Think about his tone. Think about the impact that it has on you as an audience when you hear his words, because that's in fact what makes him so important in terms of his space as an American um, writer in our country. There is a um, talk, which is now in written form, that he delivered in 1963 to teachers, to educators. And um, it's pretty long. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to pull a couple of passages out of it just so you can hear his language and the way he uses words. And he's, he's talking to these teachers and wanting them to think about their students, in particular the black boy in the classroom, the black children, but often he'll say the, the black boy. He uses the boy as, as the example. Okay. Baldwin says, now, if what I have tried to sketch has any validity, it becomes thoroughly clear, at least to me, that any Negro who is born in this country and undergoes the American educational system runs the risk of becoming schizophrenic. On the one hand, he is born in the shadow of the stars and stripes, and he is assured it represents a nation which has never lost a war. He pledges allegiance to that flag which guarantees liberty and justice for all. He is part of a country in which anyone can become president, and so forth. Clearly, this was way before Barack Obama became president. But on the other hand, he is also assured by his country and his countrymen that he has never contributed anything to civilization that his past is nothing more than a record of humiliations gladly endured. He is assumed by the Republic that he, his father, his mother, and his ancestors were happy, shiftless, watermelon-eaten darkies who loved Mr. Charlie and Miss Anne, that the value he has as a black man is proven by one thing only, his devotion to white people. If you think I am exaggerating, examine the myths which proliferate in this country about Negroes. I'm going to skip down a little bit. He goes on to say, let us say that the child is seven years old and I am his father, and I decide to take him to the zoo or to Madison Square Garden or to the UN building or to any of the tremendous monuments we find all over New York. We get into a bus and we go from where I live on 131st Street and 7th Avenue downtown through the park and we get into New York City, which is not Harlem. Now, where the boy lives, even if it is a housing project, is in an undesirable neighborhood. If he lives in one of those housing projects of which everyone in New York is so proud, he has a front door. If not closer, the pimps, the whores, the junkies, in a word, the danger of life in the ghetto. And the child knows this, though he doesn't know why. Later on, when you become a grocery boy or a messenger and you try to enter one of those buildings, a man says, go to the back door. Still later, if you happen by some odd chance to have a friend in one of those buildings, the man says, where's your package? Now this by no means is the core of the matter. 
What I'm trying to get at is that by the time the Negro child has had effectively almost all the doors of opportunity slammed in his face, and there are very few things he can do about it, he can no more or less accept it with an absolutely inarticulate and dangerous rage inside. All the more dangerous because it is never expressed. It is, this, it is precisely those silent people whom white people see every day of their lives. I mean, your porter and your maid and whoever say anything more than yes sir and no ma'am. They will tell you it's raining if that is what you want to hear. And they will tell you the sun is shining if that is what you want to hear. They really hate you. Really hate you because in their eyes, and they're right, you stand between them and life. I want to come back to this in a moment. It is the most sinister of the facts, I think, which we now face. Again, he's talking to school teachers, and he's trying to get them to understand the experience of a little boy, right? And in, in many ways, we could argue that that's himself as well, his own experiences. Um, what do you hear in his voice, whether real or implied? Frustration. He's talking to teachers. What does he want them to do? Understand. Understand what? <laughs> He's giving her a little fist pump down here. Um, he wants the teachers to understand an experience a very specific experience, right? This is not two teachers and here's how you understand all kids. Here's how we approach everyone in the classroom. It's a very specific experience. That's why it was so, he was so powerful because he wanted people to hear a very specific experience. Now that experience wasn't necessarily the same experience that other factions of the civil rights movement were presenting. Right? It was really a raw experience that many people, including blacks who, who were a part of the civil rights movement, did not really want to face and sort of allow that to be the leading voice of the movement. Right? This very angry, um, somewhat militant, maybe even radical voice, and what it, it, which was really odd is that, that some people saw him as not being very masculine. I see him as, in many ways, at least the stereotypical definition of masculine as a very masculine sort of figure, particularly in his writing voice. Um, but this was a voice that was often silenced, um, that he's really trying to get this teacher, and likely in a larger sense, the larger society, to hear this poor black male voice, right, that he's trying to represent here. Um, I want to show you a, a video. It's only three minutes, but it is a, um, there's an African-American male voice that is actually reading the words of um, James Baldwin in this piece that Baldwin um, talks about, or he answers the question, um, who is the nigger? And I use this because I, I do know that, that people don't want to hear that word, but I think that's a part of who Baldwin was. He was um, a person who was willing to use the words and use the language and speak from the voices that other people didn't really want to hear. So listen um, closely to 
I can get it to play. Who is the nigger? Well, I know this, and anybody who has tried to live knows this. What you say about somebody else, you know, anybody else, reveals you. What I think of you as being is dictated by my own necessities, my own psychology, my own um, fears and desires. I'm not describing you when I talk about you. I'm describing me. Now here in this country, we got somebody called a nigger. It doesn't in such terms, I beg you to remark, exist in any other country in the world. We have invented the nigger. I didn't invent him. White people invented him. I've always known. I had to know by the time I was 17 years old. What you were describing was not me. And what you were afraid of was not me. It had to be something else. You had invented it, so it had to be something you were afraid of and you invested me with it. Now if that's so, no matter what you've done to me, I can say to you this, and I mean it. I know you can't do any more, and I've got nothing to lose. And I know, and I've always known, you know, and really always, that's part of the agony. I've always known that I'm not a nigger. But if I am not the nigger, and if it is true that your invention reveals you, then who is the nigger? I am not the victim here. I know one thing from another. I know that I was born, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And the only way that you can get through life is to know the worst things about it. I know that a person is more important than anything else. Anything else. I've learned this because I've had to learn it. But you still think, I gather, that the nigger is necessary. But he's not necessary to me, so he must be necessary to you. So I give you your problem back. You're the nigger, baby. It isn't me. Take this hammer. Film with James Baldwin in the spring of 1963. Produced for National Education Television by the KQED Film Unit. Okay. What is he doing? What is he trying to do with his audience? What is he trying to get us, but I'm not sure if us is the audience, but to think about? Can you tell us a little bit more? What do you mean, change the perspective? Okay. Flipping it a little bit.
Mm-hmm. Other thoughts? That's an interesting point to try to um, thinking about disconnecting this word that obviously we think about negative as something awful, we don't want to hear, we're probably uncomfortable using it today, but that there is a disconnect. And he's moving himself away from that. That's not me, that's you, baby. And that's what he says. That's you. And that's very James Baldwin. That's you, baby. Right? He actually said that a lot. He, he used that very casual phrase in which he um, talked with other people. You take that back. I'm not going to hold on to that. Um, but I think the psychology behind it is really interesting, too, to, to, to really flip that around and make people think about where our ideas come from of other people, right? Do we need that person to beat down? And he talks a lot in his writing, and I'm going to read just a little bit more from a book um, that he wrote in the, um, I don't remember exactly what year, but it was clearly before his death in the 80s, he died in 1987, where he's commenting on there were murders in Atlanta where um, um, black children were being um, killed and he felt like people weren't talking about it. It wasn't important. So he wrote this whole book about the Atlanta child murders um, called The Evidence of Things Not Seen. But in this discussion, he sort of broadens it out to larger American issues um, as they relate to race. Um, But he does a lot of this um, thinking about the American myth. And from, from the way that he talks about it, he talks about the myth as being created by the white man. And that there is a real um, disconnect between what reality is, what history tells us, and this story that we keep holding on to, that story that makes the black man the nigger, right? And so you, this, this comes up a lot in his writing. Um, again, very um, raw um, he doesn't hold back. You could see in his interviews, he had no problem with his responses. And like he says, he had nothing to lose, right? Um, black man, gay man. Um, and he also says in one of his pieces um, that he writes, which I always um, come back to and think about, he describes himself as black, poor, gay, and ugly. And so he sees it as, I have nothing to lose, right? I don't have anything that's desirable anyway, so I can say whatever I want to say. And that's his own um, sort of description of himself. Um, I want to look at just a couple of pieces, and then um, we'll talk a little bit more, but I really want to make his words um, the highlight because I think his words are so powerful and they um, are important. Um, In this particular passage, he's talking about this larger notion of manifest destiny, which we all in history class talked about at some point in history, whether in, in our classes, whether in high school or now. But this movement and this idea that somehow God destined for the American, you know, man or pioneer, generally the white man, to move across and um, kind of take over the western part of the United States. He writes, the real meaning and history of manifest destiny, for example, is nothing less than calculated and deliberate genocide. But American folklore, which has seduced American history into a radiant stupor, transforms this slaughter into a heroic legend. Since the legend has obliterated the truth, and since the legend controls what is left of the American imagination, it is all but impossible for the white North American really to understand why. For example, in Salt Lake City, such Indians as may intrude on his or her attention are to be found in front of the state liquor store. Nor does he question the validity or reason for a state liquor store, 
nor why he or she, free, um, white, and over 21, can drink legally only at home or in one of the many, many, many private clubs that flourish in the Mormon capital. His presumed dominance blinds him to the rigors of his own captivity. He cannot possibly see himself as others. The subjugated see him. Um, he, he cannot possibly see himself as others, the subjugated, like they see him. He understands an Indian uprising as little as he understands crime in the streets. Crime in the streets being the action entirely of the irresponsibly discontented and ungrateful Negro. Here, again, he's talking about that myth, just like the myth of the nigger, who the nigger is, is the myth of the American story, the American history, right? And then he dares to ask the question, why? Why is there crime in the streets, right? It's because of the ungrateful Negro or the, um, uh, the lazy Indian or, or whatever the stereotypes may be. In another passage... Again, he's talking about and looking at and trying to get the audience to understand the difference in the spaces in which we come from. If you come from the perspective of a poor black man in Harlem, and if you come from the perspective as a middle-class white man and, um, with, from European descent, what are the differences and why do we view the world differently? He says, and if one wishes to say, true enough, fair enough, that I was unable to see this because I was unwilling to imagine it, this merely brings us back to my starting point, which I have suggested. Ineptly enough, perhaps, is the striking difference of emphasis, and I am deliberately avoiding the word perception, between the heirs of Europe and the heirs of Africa, the different vantage points from which our lives are apprehended. For a life is controlled and a civilization defined by what each takes life to be, and what we take life to be is what our lives become. He goes on and gives us some... Um, examples of the ways in which we take lives um, to be. The last point that I want to look at that I think is really an important, and again, this is not that old. This is, well, it might be old to you, but I was um, not that old <laughs> in the 80s. Um, but he's talking about the role of the black policeman, right? We often hear, you know, the perception, and I'm not um, validating it or not. I'm just acknowledging it. We often hear the perception of the white policeman. But he's talking about the black policeman, in particular the black policeman when it comes to dealing with black people. He says, black policemen were another matter. We used to say, if you just must call a policeman, for we hardly ever did, for God's sake, try to make sure it's a white one. A black policeman could completely demolish you. He knew far more about you than a white policeman could, and you were without defenses before this black brother in uniform whose entire reason for breathing seemed to be his hope to offer proof that, though he was black, he was not black like you. Again, about the policeman, he says, he couldn't reach the white people he hated. He couldn't strike them, so he struck us. And so was the black cop. For his white co-workers, just another nigger. He couldn't strike them, but he could take it out on us. He challenges white people. He challenges black people. He challenges folks who are um, anti-gay. He challenges all of us um, in his language and um, through his words. Um, 
I want to just stop right there for a moment and to just allow people to comment. How many of you are actually reading Giovanni's room in your classes? No one here? How many of you have read Giovanni's room? If you were in my class last semester, you should raise your hand. <laughs> okay. Um, I know I said I'd stop for a second, but just in connection to that, I don't want to dismiss his novels. His novels are actually what made him popular and what made people think about his writing as so eloquent, as so beautiful, as so wonderful. Actually, when he shifted over and, and really started to take on this tone, which we talked about maybe as being passionate, as emotional, as harsh, that's when he started to get bad criticism. People didn't like that. And oftentimes what you'll see from in the critics in the New York Times and the New Yorker reviews um, when he was alive was that he lost that beauty somehow in the essay form, in the nonfiction form, where somehow we valued him when he created characters that weren't real. But when he forced us to look at characters who are real, um, it wasn't as beautiful, right? It wasn't as um, revered in terms of, um, from some, as great American writing. Um, so that's important to understand too, that it, he's sort of shifted, he shifted um, in his writing and his focus. And maybe as he got older, that's where his um, focus turned. Any thoughts about anything that I read or, I don't even know what time it is. What time is it? <laughs> is it 1.30? It is 1.30, okay. My gosh, I didn't realize so much time went by. If you do have a comment, feel free to chime in. But what I want to say in, in terms of writing, and I'll, and I'll close with, with this thought, um, I write in the personal essay form um, myself. And um, in one of my pieces, I actually write about learning about Baldwin in a freshman composition class. And, um, and I joke that I learned about Baldwin from the voice of a white man, a white man with the afro, uh, when I was at a community college. And it was really important to me as a writer, as a person, and really in what I decided when I made a career choice, actually I shifted because of this to um, become an English major and teach English because I realized the power of words, right? The power of writing, um, the power of language. And the personal story is really important in that. Right? We can talk about issues, we can sit here and talk about racism, we could talk about classism, we could talk about all of these things, but until a real person is connected to it and a real story is there, it's really not meaningful. Right? The humanity is brought in by those personal stories. Um, that doesn't mean your entire essay should be your personal story, but that a part of that element, along with the evidence, which is what Baldwin provides us, he shows us what's happening in America, and then he brings us back to his personal story or that whatever, whosever personal story. He goes back into the realities of the society and then he comes back to that personal story. And that's really an effective strategy in trying to move audiences. Even those who are um, not on your side, they have to hear that, right? They have to hear that story and connect with that little boy in the classroom who knows, even though he doesn't know why, that his life is different, that he is different. His hopes are, you know, his, his options in the world are, are very different. Any questions or thoughts? 
Well, I thank you all for having me. I don't know that I'm a um, real good substitution for the guy who's supposed to be here, but I hope you have something to think about. And maybe we'll pick up Baldwin and read a little bit more of him um, in all of your spare time. Is that a question? Thank Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.